I'm Dr. Scott Lyons, and you're watching or listening to The Gently Used Human. Ever wonder how passion and purpose intertwine to shape our lives, or how to hack life's ride of unexpected twists and turns? Today, we explore those questions with John Miles, author of Passion Struck, on a quest to understand a life of significance and fulfillment. John brings unique insights from his experience in the Navy and Fortune 50 companies, highlighting the power of long-term vision and the importance of being adaptable. Together, we'll explore the power of mattering, the impact of loneliness, and the influence of relationships and environments on our sense of self. Join us as we connect the dots between passion, purpose, and play to discover how we all can be a little more passion-struck. John, welcome to the Gently Used Human. It is such a pleasure to have you. And Scott, it's so great to see you again. And what an honor to be on your incredible podcast and so glad to be here to serve your audience. Thank you. You know, you are such a great host of your podcast that I was a little nervous of going, can I hold up to the bar? (laughs) And so time will tell. But, you know, happy almost book birthday for Passion Struck. Big deal. So excited to celebrate this with you. Yeah, I can't believe it's already here. Yeah. We were just saying it, it goes by so quick, you know, that it's so much effort to write a book. And then the six months leading up to it is a lot of work. And then all of a sudden it's like, boom, it's hard to catch your breath, I think, sometimes with it. Well, I've been impressed with you. I think you've been playing the long game and... I really look at Matt Higgins too, and I don't know how that guy does it, but it's almost as if Burn the Boats has gotten more traction, kind of like your book, since its launch date. And I'm hoping that's what happens with mine, because I didn't write this to be like a one-time blip on the radar. Yeah. You know, it's funny that when I used to be a director, I used to direct operas and theater, and you get like maybe a week performance. And then, so you work for a year to get a week. But I will say, John, like, you know, when you put a book out there, it really, it can feel like a couple weeks of bigness, but it actually is, it resides in the the world forever. And there's something really special about that. Oh, definitely. And I wrote it for my kids. I gave them both a copy and I hope they read it (laughs) because it'll help them immensely in their life. That's funny. I wrote my book for my parents. (laughs) Addicted to drama. There you go. (laughs) I'm just kidding. All right, my friend. You know, I've wanted, since we first met, I've wanted to ask you about particular things because you have such a unique background, at least to me of like, you know, when I first got introduced to your work and I knew you were, you know, a real a guiding voice in alternative health and leadership. And I didn't quite know your background. And then when I found out that you were in the Navy and you were senior executive for Fortune 50, I was like, whoa, you know, that's a really interesting progression. And I'd love to just start with some of your history and your background of like, what are some of the major things that emerged from your time first in the US Navy and then as a executive of, you know, in Fortune 50, which is a huge deal too. Well, Scott, I think it all started when I made the decision, instead of uh, going to the University of Michigan, where my parents and grandparents and everyone had gone to, I made the decision to go to the Naval Academy. And I think it came down to three things. Uh, My father and my grandfather were both veterans. And so I felt this calling to serve. I also had always had this deep desire inside to become a leader and to become the best leader I could. And when I looked at it, what better place could you possibly go than one of the service academies to get that? And then the, the third thing was, I guess I had always put myself in positions that challenged who I was. And I just looked at the fork in the road and what was going to challenge my inner core more, where I could develop that inner perseverance over life. And so that was the starting point. And it had served me really well. And there have been so many things in my life. And I think this isn't just me. This is other people where you think your life is going to go in a certain direction and it just happens. Some of it is within our control. Some of it is completely outside of our control. And I think some of it is divinely inspired. But for me, my first major change was coming out of the Naval Academy, I wanted to be a Navy SEAL. And I had the grades for it. I had the positioning for it. But 
I played rugby and I had a few concussions where I lost consciousness that were traumatic brain injuries that they deemed because of the post-concussion syndromes that I wasn't a candidate. So that threw my life kind of in a turmoil. And, but it, it ended up becoming one of the best things that ever happened to me. I was selected to become an information warfare officer working for the National Security Agency. And if I didn't have that background of information technology, information operations, I don't think it would have ever led to me doing any of the things that I did uh, later on in my career in these Fortune 50 companies. Wow. What did that entail, that job in the Navy? And so... <laughs> I'm this so, was so out of coveted, my scope. <laughs> I, I mean, it was yeah. such a coveted spot because there were wow. only three billets. I think there are more now, but the, the time when I was there, it was only three billets. And it was a really desired community because if you look at the SEAL community, it's probably the smallest team leadership you're going to get because you're operating in a squad or a platoon. But this actually had the highest ratio of officer to enlisted of any job that an officer could have in the Navy. And so I think it was like 100 to 120 ratio. And so for me, it was like, if I want to become a leader, this is going to give me not only experience with one-on-one -on -one leadership, but leading large organizations. And the fascinating thing about it is to me, doing what I did in the service and anything that deals with intelligence, it's kind of like being in a company where your HR functions, your financial functions, legal functions, technology functions kind of cut across the rest of the business. I felt the same thing with what I was doing. And I got to go on deployments on submarines, on aircraft carriers, cruisers, destroyers, got to fly an aircraft. And probably the most rewarding assignment was I actually got uh, assigned to Naval Special Warfare Unit 10. And so I got to do that tour with the SEALs. So that kind of fulfilled that aspect of me. But it really allowed me to see things in a diverse way because you had to see the whole big picture for what you were doing. And I got to cut across really every dimension of the Navy and Marine Corps. So that scale of being able to like see the holistic experience was something that developed even more during that position in that time? Yeah, absolutely. And I think for me, that's something that uh, has really been a differentiator in my career is when I'm looking at something, whether it's the formulation of passion struck, which I'm doing now, to things I did strategically, I really looked at whatever the initiative was, not in a 12-month basis, but really over the next five to 10 years and where in the future could this thing go? And then I think the thing I really learned as I got more seniors that a lot of times people can't see that longer term vision. So you really do have to break it down to the smaller chunks to get people invested in it. But for me, you know, I have a 10 year vision for what I want to do with passion struck and we're just at the very early stages, but it's that whole principle that I bring up in the book that we're going to talk about. Uh, I call it the bee and turtle effect, but it's really having that long term vision like a tortoise does, but the daily activities as if you were in a beehive. And how do you combine those for maximum peak performance? Yeah. As you're talking, it reminds me of this story or this experience I had when I was in my late teens and I was an acting student or an actor. And I had an acting teacher who's brilliant. And she said, you'll never be a good enough actor until you can picture 12 steps ahead of the chess game. Like if you know the next 12 steps and you can track it and change it along the way, that's what's going to make you the actor. And I didn't quite understand the link of it then, but the ability to have that holistic vision be adaptable, but also planning ahead, the like the skill set to plan ahead, but not be attached to it or to be mobile and adaptive to the changes along the way. It's something I really appreciate. And I know that's something you really talk about and embody in your work as well. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And it's interesting because as I've been trying to, to get myself re-equipped to do large keynotes, I've been trying to put myself into different speaking opportunities. And one of the things I started about six months ago was taking improv classes. And right now I'm doing long form improv. And so just last night we were doing scene work and it is so interesting in how you set it up. And, but in improv, it's almost like you do have to keep your eyes forward on the chess mat. But since it's so unpredictable in what's going to transpire, it's also a real focus of staying in the moment because you're staying into the cues that the person you're doing the scene with or people are saying because they 
give you the attributes or the different character insights that you can then activate and take advantage of. So it's been a really, it's, it's sometimes challenging because it's not something that comes easy to me, but rewarding mm. uh, venture. I love that. I love that you're doing that. And what are some of the other things that you're learning from that that's shifting inside of you from engaging in improv classes? One of the th things, and I wrote an article on this uh, a couple of years ago, and to this day, it's one of my most popular articles. I think it has like 30,000 downloads. It was on the importance of adult play and the fact that as we get older, it's like we want to play, but it's almost as if we forget how to play. And so one of my favorite things that happens in improv classes, you always started out with a bunch of games and man, do they put you into uncomfortable situations. But I've just learned that everyone's probably feeling that same way. So it's better just to lean into it. And so really experiencing that play has been something that's joyful because I look forward to this because I don't get many opportunities to do it. I think the other thing it's taught me again is to really pay attention to others and to watch what their body is giving off and their energy and things like that. And it's given me a, a really good reminder of how important diversity is, uh, d diversity of thought, diversity of people, perspectives, because when you're doing this and you're thrown into, like yesterday, I was part of a scene that we were acting like we were different members of a child's camping staff, and we had to take on different personas. And I was the custodian. And it just, when you put yourself into a character, it, it kind of just changes everything and you can be whoever you want to be with it, which is great because the nice thing about improv is no one really cares about what you're talking about. They care about the interrelationships and how you're feeding off of each other. Yeah. I love that. I think that that play goes to say like, Hey, we have so many flavors of ourselves. You know, we talk about like our uniqueness, but even in our uniqueness, there's so many flavors we haven't touched upon. And I love that in improv, we get to like, you know, move into that part of ourselves, that sillier part or that more serious part or any of those other aspects of ourselves we might often not associate with our core sense of who we are. Yeah. And I have to tell you the other thing, and I, I don't want to give their names out, but I'm in this class with a couple pretty famous actors and oh. Hollywood actors. And it's interesting because I went in and one of them taught my previous improv class and the other one would come and be in it. But long form, I guess, even for them, it is a different animal. So it's been interesting to see that they're messing up just as much as the rest of us <laughs> and asking questions. And But it's great to see that they're constantly trying to get better at their craft. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's beautiful. I love hearing that. So, you know, I have worked with veterans, therapists, and then I've also worked with many CEOs in the Fortune 100, Fortune 50. And I am so curious how you made that transition and how the learning from even your time in the U.S. Navy transitioned into working as an executive. I never in a million years thought that this was going to be my career path. I got <laughs> yeah. out of the, I, the last job I had in the military is I was working in Key West and probably a lot of people don't even know this, but the major counter drug task force in the United States is out of Truman Point on Key West. And so that was my last duty station. And it was such a rewarding experience. In fact, they built the Department of Homeland Security based on our model because it was the first time they'd ever seen different organizations cooperate instead of compete. And I think I was instrumental in that because I was there fairly early in its progression. But we had customs, DEA, like my function kind of represented the CIA and NSA. We had different foreign countries there. But coming out of that, I was recruited by all these three-letter organizations and ended up getting job offers from many of them and picked the FBI. And so I was totally figuring that my career was going to be 20, 25 years as an FBI agent. And so I get out of the military and I get out on a Monday. I'm supposed to report to Quantico the following Monday, Thursday or Friday of that week. I get a call from my detailer who says, I've got some really bad news for you. Congress is a bunch of idiots who can't pass the budget. And we had to have a cutoff and they passed it. So you've been recycled. So my next question was, okay, so what I get to do this next month. And he just said, no, unfortunately you're looking at somewhere between 
18 months at the soonest to as much as four years. And I'm married at the time. And I'm like, what? (laughs) And I didn't have a plan B. I mean, who would have had a plan B? I mean, mean, it's one of the, I I guess what I learned from that is don't trust the government, but (laughs) (laughs) Uh (laughs) but I didn't know what to do and I had to do something quick. So in those days, it wasn't like you had the Naval Academy Alumni Association with this listing of graduates. So I called them up and they did have a listing of graduates, but it was in this book that was like 5,000 pages long that had every academy grad from any of the academies. And I just went in there and just randomly started calling people up and writing them letters. And about six weeks later, it amounted in three jobs. And one was to go on an assembly line. I think it was in Indiana for Honda creating cars. Another one was to be a tester in right outside the Pentagon for WorldCom. And then the third one was this offer to go and become a management consultant for Booz Allen. And I weighed all three of them and not knowing anything about industry. I'm like, the consulting one is like it all, all day long because it's going to give me exposure to different industries and I'm going to learn the most. And so that's kind of how I got into it. And then about six years later, I had gone from Booz Allen to Arthur Anderson. I was a practice leader. I was leading the whole information security group for the Southwest region. I was in charge of our global threat and vulnerability center of excellence. And man, within three weeks of Enron happening, and I was based in Houston, I went from millions of dollars as a book of business to not even having a client left. And so the same place I found myself six years earlier, I was like right back there again. And I mean, I had an opportunity to go to Protivity or we could have gone to KPMG but I just had such a bad taste in my mouth. I just lost a quarter million dollars for the buy-in for the partnership. And I just decided to pivot into industry at that point and wound up for a global company called Lendlease as their first chief information security officer. Wow. I want to take a moment to give a loud shout out to the Embody Lab, which is one of the most incredible resources for body-based and somatic therapies. This show is all about healing and the Embody Lab does exactly that. Whether you're on your own journey of transformation and discovery or enhancing your skill sets in your career as like a coach or a therapist, a body worker, or really any career where you are supporting other gently used humans, the Embody Lab is your place for deep, inspiring and impactful workshops, certificates, masterclasses, and an incredible community of like-minded folks. I love the Embody Lab, and so do so many other people that call it a platform to come home to over and over again. The Embody Lab is giving my listeners an exclusive offer, a one-time 10% off code to enhance your embodied well-being. All you have to do is go to theembodylab.com and use the code GENTLYUSE10 at checkout. I mean, talk about getting knocked down and finding your way. And, you know, it's, it's much more nuanced than that, I know. But, you know, it really speaks to something inside of you that kept saying, find the way, find a way. I think, I mean, it's something I touch on in the book. I believe that there's really three major ingredients that we need to have in this whole pursuit of self-realization. And it's passion combined with perseverance combined with intentionality. And so I guess I've just learned to realize that trying times are like elastic band-aid or like elastic uh, rubber bands and that they end. And whether it's big T trauma, little T trauma, job change, like whatever it is, it's a phase and you just have to have the fortitude just like you're doing an intense workout to get through it knowing that eventually there's going to be relief on the other side and there are going to be gains to be made. And I think that's always just been how I've approached any setback in my life. Yeah, I really appreciate you naming sort of these pieces in your life. I think you read someone's bio like yours, you see the success 
someone's had with such a big podcast and radio and a successful book coming out. And to hear like that in the human experience has so many roadblocks that demand some type of response. And oftentimes we collapse and that's okay. That's been part of human too. And other times we pivot. And I just really appreciate you sort of normalizing that with your experience, your your story. Thank you. I just kept pushing forward. And, you know, I think at this point, the mistake, if I look back that I made, if I could correct, go back in time and correct it is, I think I started getting caught up in what Tim Kasser wrote in his book about the high price of materialism. And I'm not sure if you've ever read that book. I think it came out in 2003, but he really gives a scientific explanation for how we have really become a society driven by consumerism, materialism, and societal pressure to conform to the matrix, really. And that's what I started doing. I guess at that point, I started angling more and more for the titles and the success and the accolades and the magazine articles and the big house and the nice cars and everything like that. And something I wanted to be clear to the audience about is, is I don't necessarily think there's anything wrong with wanting these aspirations, but for me, what ended up happening is I think as I got more on this high achiever drive to start hitting these milestones, it was let's go from the chief information security officer and find a way now to become the chief information officer. And then it's like every stage I was hitting, I'd hit these huge career marks and then I would just want the next thing. And as I look back, what ends up happening when you're doing this is you start perpetuating this cycle of where we find ourselves doing the same thing. And I think when you do that, what ends up happening is you get distracted from that real inner voice who's telling you that you're on the wrong path. And that for sure was what was going on with me. And this thing started to show up, but it was like this quiet whisper. And in these lives we lead with the burdens that we have, you know, if you look at self-discrepancy theory, you've got your ideal self. I mean, you've got your actual self, which is who we are today. You've got your ought self, which is who we think we should be because of our burdens and obligations. And we have our ideal self and who we could become. And I was definitely down that path of chasing the ought self because I now had these, I guess, society expectations that I had built up for this level of living that we were at. I had family obligations. I had rent. I had car payments. And you get in this point where you just get consumed with wanting more. And all this time, uh, I had this voice telling me that your real uniqueness isn't being exploited in the way that could make the biggest impact on the world. And it took me a while to finally listen to it. And really, a, a therapist like yourself to sit me down and help me see the way I was living my life compared to the way that it possibly could be if I crafted it in the way that was aimed more at becoming that ideal version of myself. Mm. John, there's this nuanced piece that I, first of all, thank you for naming that. That's so beautiful and articulate. And this voice and this whisper that I think so many of us have had in our lives of saying, you know, it shows up either as body sensation or ache, or sometimes as clear as like a inner whisper of words or nightmares even in our sleep something that feels disruptive or disturbing, which is symbolic of something that doesn't feel aligned in ourselves. And it's interesting that it's like, how do we discern between that sense that we're not on the right path, that there's a misalignment in our life versus an intolerableness or not yet enough resilience for challenge, which is also part of life? You know, it's difficult. And I'm going to be the first one to say that it's not the easiest thing to take that step. I mean, it's so easy for me to say, you know, look at the abyss and take the step into it, man. Just do it. Go <laughs> out there it. and do it. But, I mean, I was there. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. And darn, you want that safety net because that abyss yeah. is like a big black hole of potential risk and complete destruction of what you think you've created in life. I think Arthur Brooks is doing a great job with his new book with Oprah at kind of reinforcing some of the things I'm trying to reinforce. And that is 
the path to happiness and and contentment is we get the equation all wrong. We think it's this chasing success when it's really the important things in life are relationships, our emotional health, our spiritual guidepost, you know, our desire to want to be the best we can be and to show kindness and gratitude and evolve in this form that we're helping other people do the same thing. And I think an interesting discussion I had on the podcast was with Dacker Keltner. And I remember discovering Dacker through Susan Cain's work and how influential he was. And so from that point forward, I was wanting to get him on the podcast. And I was so happy that he came out with his book, Awe, because it was such an interesting discussion. He is such a beautiful human being. And one of his missions is he gives back by volunteering at Sam Quentin. And he talks to death row prisoners. I'm not sure if it's still the same because I don't, I don't think Sam Quentin, I think things have changed there. But he told me that it's crazy. You would go to a prison where people are on death row and yet you would see some of the most common examples of people experiencing awe. And it's so foreign to us because we think it's got to be with the birth of a child or going to the Grand Canyon or this or that. But through his 30 years of research, he's boiled it down to we most feel awe and that sense of contentment when either we are observing others do acts of service to other people or we ourselves are doing those acts. And to me, that's really profound. That's a beautiful example. And I'm thinking as you're talking about that, I was like, oh, what's been my experience of Oz in those who are listening? It's like, this is a, a great opportunity to pause of going, when was the last time you felt ah? You know, what was happening in your body? What was it expanding within you? Because I think that's also a piece of awe. It's like it's an expansion beyond the norm in some I mean, directionality. I'll, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'll give a great example. I, I remember yeah. a few weeks ago, I just happened to be uploading stuff on Instagram or something and a reel caught my attention. It was this guy named Noam Platt who lives in New Orleans. And it was just a really incredible story. This guy had somehow gotten into helping people, especially children with, with disabilities, build adaptive technologies to help them function better in life. And he was working with a group called Make Good, and he started their local chapter in NOLA. But they were looking at everything from like adaptive toilets to chairs to other devices, where they almost do this as if you're doing a software project and they open source it. And then he ended up forming a partnership with Tulane and they were building these things for these children that were life altering. And for me, I felt odd just by listening to the story and hearing the kids and their families talk about the profound impact it had in absolutely changing their kid's life because it offered a mobility in ways that we as an able-bodied person can't even comprehend because we're not yeah. in their shoes. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's such a beautiful example. And it's like that can't comprehend. And then there's an experience of something that exceeds that inability to comprehend. It's, it's also for me, like those moments of awe. This show is also brought to you by the absolutely stunning and powerful tools for transformation that are created by Omala. Oof, even the name Omala transports you to a place of flow and vitality. These are some of my favorite products ever, like an amazing color-changing yoga mat that responds to your temperature and presence and reflects back your posture in real time. They have this incredible smelling skin balm candle that heats up to activate all the essential oils and vitamins that your skin has been craving for. I mean, look, if I could live in a giant bath of this candle, I would 100% do it. They also have these journals that lead you into a profound insight, and then you can plant those journals to create a stunning flower garden. I mean, damn, if that's not both deep and inventive, I don't know what is. If you're someone who desires to live in a luxurious flow of life and who believes in transformative wellness, then you have to check out Omala. Omala is giving my listeners an exclusive discount to treat yourself to something that is as special as you, boo. 
All you have to do is go to omala.com. That's O-M-A-L-A.com. Use the discount code DrScott10 at checkout. And a portion of every purchase goes to an incredible charity. You got this. Yeah, and if the listeners want another great example of this, Louis Schwartzberg, who was the director behind uh, Fantastic Fungi, which a lot of people might know, has a newer film called Gratitude Revealed. And man, it is just 60 minutes of awe-inspiring conversations and exploration of our world and how much gratitude we should be feeling on a everyday basis that most of us don't even realize because we're so distracted by what's going on around us. Yeah. For example, is that on the same platform as it's on Netflix, the same? Well, you can just go to gratituderevealed.com. I think he has it and and you can watch it right there. Oh, perfect. Sounds uh, like an evening movie I will watch. <laughs> so I want to get into this thing called passion, since it seems to be a hot topic these days and part of the title of your book. And, you know, where is the relationship between passion struck and a sense and purpose? Where do those two find each other in relation to each other? I think they're absolutely related to each other. They're synergistic with each other, but I think each connotates a little bit different thing. I consider passion to be that inner fuel inside of you that ignites your intrinsic motivation to keep doing an activity. And I think purpose gets more to your why, as Simon Sinek would put it. But when you combine the two, when you have that direction and then it's fueled with passion, that's where to me, you start breaking through. You start doing things that are a little bit different from everyone else. And you know, if you look at the different blue zones across the world and why some people live longer than others, one of the things that you commonly find is that in these communities, they all have an overarching purpose, which fuels their passion. And that is a cornerstone of having that drive that, and I think what this comes down to is to me, both of these really are formative to our feeling that we matter to that we are significant in the world, that we are significant to others. And a big premise that I talk about through the lens of Henry David Thoreau's quiet desperation is I think so many people today feel the exact opposite. They feel what Gordon Flynn at University of York calls anti-mattering. It's this feeling that we don't matter. And Scott, I have to tell you, man, I was just shocked when I started going into this. So I would have thought that this whole topic of mattering would have been something that had been studied by positive psychology or behavior science. And so I went to... Marty Seligman, I went to Adam Grant, I went to Katie Milkman, Angela Duckworth, Ethan Cross, I mean, Max Bazerman. I kept asking, no one was aware of any work that was being done on mattering. The closest thing I found was Ethan Cross says, you know, the closest thing I know to it is the work of Edward DC and Richard Ryan on self-determination theory. And then I happened to be interviewing uh, this professor, Thomas Coran out of the UK about perfectionism. And and mattering came up and he said, I actually found someone who's studying it. And lo and behold, Gordon has been studying this for like 20 years. And finally, there was an article published. It was either the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times about this. And it is so profound to me. It's why I think one of the major reasons we have so many mental health issues going on is people don't feel significant. I feel it's why people feel hopeless why people are feeling lonely, like they don't matter to anyone. And it's at the root of so many things. And it seems like such a simple thing to solve. Yet, I think it is really a profound issue. I'm going to pause there because I think that's a moment of awe for me of going, whoa, loneliness might be a symptom of not feeling like you matter. That's big. I mean, so often we say, you know, like loneliness is might even be the root cause. But if we take even a step back and deconstruct it, it's like, do you have this internal sense that you matter? And I mean, if you look at the work that's out there, and then the one that people are quoting, they quote it this way. So they say Gallup says that 
70 to 85% of all people are disengaged. I mean, if you put that another way, I mean, this is what it's really saying. I mean, there are only like 1.1, 1.2 full-time workers across the whole globe. If you look at their study, it's saying that 900 million people in 142 countries feel unfulfilled. And then I've started to do work around loneliness, around hopelessness, and it is just skyrocketing. It's crazy. I was looking at this research of where is the most lonely place on earth. And it turns out this map I was looking at, it was Brazil. Like 56% of people over 18 feel pervasive sense of loneliness, which is different than isolation. I mean, we can yeah, purposely yeah. feel isolation and be content with it. But lonely is, is, I mean, as you know, as a therapist, I mean, it's a horrible state to be in. Why Brazil? Do you know? I don't know. I'm still trying to double down on that to understand, but my podcast is like top 30 over there and I talk about mattering all the time. So evidently it's striking a chord. It's definitely striking a chord. So, you know, how do people gain a sense or an embodied experience that they matter or on the other side of it, that things they are doing matter? So I think it starts in many ways with the people around us. I mean, I'll give you just a great example. Gartner Research from 2022 found that 82% of employees say it's important for their organization to see them as a person, not just as an employee. Yet, only 40% of employees believe their organization actually sees them this way. And it's just as simple as how do you show gratification? How do you show your gratitude to the people who work for you? Are you doing it? mindlessly? Or are you intentionally doing things based on each individual person? Are you helping them to not only excel in being their best at work, are you taking the extra effort to help them be their best that they can be outside of work? But it's not just that, it's in our relationships. And I mean, think about the invisible influences. You know, this goes to some of Jonah Berger's work out of Penn that he talks about that we are exposed to these influences that, I mean, the way people often say it is we are reflective of the five people we're most closely associated with. But I think it goes beyond that. I think it's these influences around us. And if they're not seeing you for who you authentically are, you start going down this path that I describe in the book of, it's like you're living your life as if you're in a daily masquerade wearing a mask of pretense and after a while, you become such an inauthentic version of yourself that you don't even know who you are anymore. I mean, you were completely lost. And then because you're not showing up as yourself, people aren't seeing you as yourself and you've got this compounding effect. And I think, I mean, that's my theory, but I think it, yeah. it builds from there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's an interesting like practice to really go, I'm going to pause here, think of the five closest people in my life see how they are a reflection of me. And then one of the things I also think about is like the top five ecosystems or environments that I'm in and see how that might be an invisible reflection of who I am too, or how I'm experiencing myself at least. Like if I'm with five really awesome people, that's great. But then I go into work and it's toxic. That's seeping in my skin just as much as the five people I'm with, as I kind of hear you saying that as well. Yeah. Or, I mean, it's the opposite. You have an enjoyable job, but then you go home and you're in a toxic relationship where the place you want to feel like you can be authentic is the one place you can't be. And mm. I mean, that can be even worse. Yeah. 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 Oof. We've all been there <laughs> or many of us have. That's tough. So, Let's keep going with this. Like, okay, so I come to you, you're, you know, you're a big leadership coach. I'm, I'm going, John, I, I feel like the work I'm doing right now doesn't really matter. And if I really reflect even deeper, like, I'm not sure I really matter. I'm not talking about some great, significant, serious depression. I just don't like get the sense that I am impacting, that I have this fire inside that's doing anything or that there's even that much fire left. Now what? Well, 
To me, the first step that you got to do, and it's actually the first principle that I bring up in the book, and, and let me just give the listeners a little bit of context to it, it is, as you mentioned, I am not trained as a psychologist or a psychiatrist, so I just want to put that out there first. But what I have done is I really became interested in what causes some people as Robin Sharma says, to become part of the top 5%. And what really is the 5%? Like, what does that mean when people say it? And so I started to study at this point about nine and a half years ago, what I considered to be remarkable individuals. And this was everyone from Serena Williams or, or Roger Federer to Bono to Oprah Winfrey to astronauts to military leaders to CEOs. Like, what was at the root of how these people, because if you look at their backstory, all of them were stuck at some point and then they become unstuck and their life explodes. Like what leads to this? And I ended up discovering 12 principles that kept repeating themselves. And it just so happened magically that six of them were mindset shifts, six of them were behavior shifts. All of them, it turns out, are backed by psychology or behavior science. And so that's how each chapter kind of lays them out as it kind of goes through the principle, the science behind it, et cetera. So in this first one, I talk about this whole idea of mission angler. And I tried to give each one of these chapters or principles kind of a nifty name. I mean, really what's at the core of this chapter is this whole idea of life crafting. And I'll go back to that conversation I had with my therapist. I remember he sat me down. We were probably into a month or so of our conversation. So we had a good at that point, lay down of what was going on with me. And he, he said, you know, John, just close your eyes. And I want you to visualize sitting in a kitchen and walking up to a stool in your kitchen. And he goes, now, as you're sitting there, I want you to think that underneath it, it's only got like one major support that's holding it up. And for you, what that's become is the constant grind. He goes, you are putting so much emphasis on achievement that you're sacrificing so many other aspects of you. And, and at that point I was feeling absolutely numb. I was depressed. I was burned out all the things. And he just said, I want you to visualize what is happening to you. And, and what do you think is going to completely happen? I go, well, the thing is teetering on the point of collapse He's like, you're absolutely correct. And then he goes, I want you to think about it differently. And I want you to think about how you could possibly craft your life differently to think about a different reward system for what's carrying you forward. And he said, the post could be anything that you want. For me, it just made sense that they resonated with physical health, emotional health, spiritual health, et cetera. And that really became the foundation of my exploration into alternative health. <laughs> and what led me on the journey to what I'm doing now, it was through, I guess, some of the best experimentation that we go through is me search. And so this became my own search to like, how do I take these things that I'm studying and apply them in my own life and actually see if this stuff is a bunch of crap or if it actually works? And so I think people sometimes think like, okay, so you've got this stool and you've got these different pillars, now what? And I think this is the mistake people make. I mean, we're right at the beginning of the year. And when you think about these New Year's resolutions, I think the problem people do is they go back to that example that I brought up at the beginning. They try to do way too many things all at once and they end up not doing any of them. And so what ended up working for me is I just picked one element. And for me, it was, I needed better emotional health because I was feeling all these things and I had to work my way out of it. So for me, it was really getting myself consistent with going to see a therapist. And then it was really working on creating a mindfulness practice, which I'm like Dan Harris. He and I laugh about this. I mean, he and I are like the two biggest skeptics you will ever find for mindfulness. And for me, when I first started it, you know, the thought of just sitting cross-legged on the floor, like it just didn't work for me. But I found that if I was in movement, whether that was on a walk or yoga, that I was able to put myself there. And, and it was amazing, Scott. After a while of consistently creating these habit loops, what ended up happening is the synergistic effects started happening. I started seeing betterment, not just in that one pillar, but across all the pillars, because it started 
to cascade and give me confidence that I could intentionally start making changes in the others. And then I think the other thing people don't understand is if you're in this position, it takes you a long time to get there. So you can't just flip a switch and expect yourself to recover. So you also have to practice self-care and and self-compassion and understand that it's going to take a while to get there and that it's going to be a trial to get back. So those are some of the things I would recommend. So what I love what you're naming is like, hey, if you've been feeling numb, if you've been feeling like maybe you don't matter if you're feeling like there's some sense of I don't have the direction or there's some misalignment, even if you start on the path to it, it's not going to be like, whoop, there it is. It's a progression of going, oh, there's a little bit of spark again. And that spark gets bigger or there's some directionality. And then there's more. And that one lane highway that I'm driving on suddenly becomes a multi-lane highway where I feel like I have lots of choices and movements, but it's an expansion over time as opposed to direct shift or change. Is that what I hear? One of the most important principles that I cover throughout the entire book is the power of action. And to me, it boils down to what behavior scientists call micro choices. Every day we each have 60 to 90,000 thoughts, depending on what research you read. But so many of those we do as if we're a pinball, just bouncing off the things that impact us. But when we're a pinball, we're not intentional. We're apathetic. We're not solving world issues. We're perpetuating mediocrity. And so the only way that you're going to break out of that is that in these micro choices that you make day in and day out, You need to start compounding them with choices that are leading you towards your ideal self instead of where you're stuck. And all that has to be is one or two choices starting out, just tiny choices. And over time, it compounds and you start making more and more intentional choices in the direction that you want to take. And these choices become habits. These habits become behaviors. And over time, you have real change. Yeah. I was talking to a patient this morning and she was devastated and she was like, this is falling apart and this is falling apart and where do I start and where do I start? And you know, it, it was a sense that everything had to change at once too. And we talked about micro changes because I was inspired by your book. And I was like, what's the smallest change of support? Like what's the smallest thing that we can bring in that just feels like a support? And I could hear the relief of just being like, oh, I don't have to do it all at once. And we talked about, I know you also talked about in your work of like, what are the things of support that you bring in to allow for change so that you don't collapse in change, like the transitions of change or this idea of micro changes. And uh, I guess I want to land sort of with that about like changes inherent in life, changes part you know, of the healing process or the progression towards revitalizing your sense of purpose and matter and passion. So what are some of your top tips that you can offer people to support the process of change? The key things that is paramount to this whole book is you have to shift to becoming a a brand reinventor, meaning everyone I've looked at who has done incredible things, let's just take Bono, They are constantly evolving. They're constantly reinventing themselves. They're never staying stagnant. I mean, if you look at him when he first started with U2 to to where they are now and the different ways that their music has changed and his philanthropic endeavors have changed, it's just this journey of him constantly doing introspection and changing and adapting and becoming more passionate and more concerned for the outcomes that he wants to see in life. I think if you look at Desmond Tutu or the great leaders, Abraham Lincoln, I mean, they did the same thing. It's, I mean, if you look at Abraham Lincoln, like he is one of the biggest reinventors I've ever seen. That guy kept reinventing himself because he was struggling to find his identity. He went from like shop clerk to surveyor to tried for political office to becoming a lawyer to then going back into political office, failing, becoming a lawyer again. And I mean, I think it's important for people to realize Abraham Lincoln for over three quarters of his life self-identified in his writings that he was a piece of driftwood. 
And it wasn't until he found that one thing he was trying to reinvent. But when he found that one thing, he had reinvented himself enough that when it hit, he was in the proper position. He had done the work. So when slavery became his main thing, he was able to act on it. Mm, that's really inspiring. That's really inspiring. Have you found that for yourself as in your process of, you know, in your journey as you've written this book, as you've done all of these things? Yeah, I mean, I definitely think it has. I mean, I think what people lose sight of is you don't have to think about changing the world. You just need to help change one person. And I guess that's how I've started this whole thing is I've I had this long-term goal that I wanted to help masses of people, but it all starts with helping one person change. And so if this book or my podcast or anything I'm doing, this discussion we're having today helps one person, then I think what we fail to realize is that one person's life can then influence another person who can influence another person. And it's a compounding effect. So don't overcomplicate things. Give yourself self-compassion for the journey that you're on, realizing what got you to where you are, just like Marshall Goldsmith says, isn't going to get you to where you want to go. And it's going to be pain along the way, but tremendous award. And I guess that's what I felt along this whole journey is, I mean, even with you as a podcaster, I mean, there are times where you get isolated and you wonder, why do I keep doing this? And am I really making an impact? And then someone uh, writes a review or reaches out to you and, and tells you how this episode impacted them and it keeps you going. And I think the same thing with change in our life. You've got to develop that reward system for yourself that aligns to your aspirations that you have. Mm, so beautiful. Thank you for being such a force of change and giving such a clear process of direction and steps to coming back to alignment to grow our sense of passion and purpose and a sense of matterness, not only in ourselves, but in what we're doing in the world. John, thank you so much for being on The Gently Used Human. I can't recommend his book enough, folks. Please go read it and devour it, embody it, action it. It's a game changer. Thank you so much, John. Oh, Scott, it was my honor to be here. And I hope I just positively touch one person in your audience. I am sure of it, my friend. I am sure of it. Take care, everyone. And thank you for listening. And we'll connect again soon. Thank you for listening to the Gently Used Human podcast with Dr. Scott Lyons and friends. Visit GentlyUse.com for fun extras, including submitting your questions for advice from a Midwestern mom. And don't forget to spill the tea and gossip about the show with all your friends and frenemies. And show some love by giving us five stars and leaving a review in your favorite apps. This helps us connect with all the other gently used humans out there. Oh, and by the way, you look fierce today. <laughs> <laughs>